All right, uh, I'm excited to be able to have the opportunity to teach uh, this morning. I'm excited about a lot of things right now, and I can't decide which one of them I'm most excited about. Uh, the first one is the monsoon is actually producing rain this year, which I'm real excited about that. Uh, and the second one is the fact that the Suns apparently are going to win an NBA championship. I mean, come on, come on. I'm, I'll admit it, uh, my family has Suns fever. Uh, we're watching all the games, we're carving out time, we got the family coming over so we can cheer tonight. Uh, I'm, I'm very excited. I haven't actively watched the NBA since Michael Jordan retired, not the third time, not the first, the sec, I think it was the second time he retired is when I stopped paying attention. Um, the Washington Wizards thing, that didn't actually happen. And here's what I've been reminded of. Man, it's really fun to watch high-level professional basketball. It's fast. They're playing hard. They're throwing everything they can at it. I understand that, like, the 30-second game of the regular season can't be played at this intensity or they'd die. Uh, but, boy, right now when they're just laying it all out there, I really, really love it. But it also introduces this idea that we hear about a lot in professional sports when, when there's a singular focus in somebody's life. Uh, and then that time comes to an end. Either they achieve their goal or they're forced to retire or an injury stops what they've been trying to pursue. And it begs this like question of who are we when the work stops? We see it in high performers all over the world. Bill Gates built what at the time was the largest company the world had ever seen in Microsoft, and then he retired and rebuilt himself as some sort of philanthropist that's going to help us save the world, apparently. Jeff Bezos just built the biggest uh, retail engine since Walmart in Amazon, and uh, now he's going to be an astronaut or something? I don't know. Is anybody paying attention? I'm not sure what he's doing, but spaceships. Tom Brady, when he finally retires with whatever his eighth, ninth, tenth ring, whatever it's going to be, I don't know how he's going to do it. I mean, he's going to be young and healthy and in shape and successful and well. He'll be fine. He'll be fine. <laughs> but, it, but it does beg the question, like, who are you when the work, the project, the goal is achieved? Who are you at that point? Maybe you go, you know what, that's a problem for high performers to deal with. Me, I'm just an average Joe. I hear about this same problem happening with parents who spent 20, 25, 30 years raising their children, focusing on this project, and now the kids have left the house, and there's an existential crisis that comes upon them when they say, who am I now? I've forgotten, and it asks the question, what are we? Who are we when doing gives way to being? Who are we when doing gives way to being. That's the question that the Jews are being asked as we head into Nehemiah chapter 7 and 8 tonight, this morning. Yes, you heard it right. I have two chapters of Nehemiah that I have to teach you in the next 35 minutes. So put on your seatbelts. Here we go. Okay, uh, I'm going to give you a 60-second run-up to where we are in the story. I know every guy that gets up here feels like they have to do that, but let's be honest, we're all not experts in Nehemiah and ancient Israel history. So I'm going to try to help you get up to speed. Here we go. King David becomes the king of Israel, and he builds the nation in God's ways. And then his son, King Solomon, does it even better. And they, they become a very prosperous nation, and he builds this amazing temple. But the next generation screws the whole thing up. They have a civil war in the country, and the country is split into two. The northern kingdom of Israel uh, is where the bulk of the people are. Ten of the twelve tribes of Israel are in that northern kingdom, and they reestablish their capital in the city of Samaria. 
hence the Samaritans, which is where you get a bunch of this tension that exists in Jesus' day with the Jews and the Samaritans not liking each other. It goes all the way back to this moment. The southern kingdom is kind of the runty stepbrother. They have two of the t- 12 uh, nations. They do have Jerusalem, which is their historic capital, but they have less land, less space, less people, less influence, which seems like losing until the Assyrians, the great nation next door, takes notice of the big nation of Israel, and they come in and they wipe them out. They also kind of take a punch at the nation of Judah, which is the name for the southern nation, but they manage to kind of survive and limp their way through it. And after that, the only nation of Israel we know is that small little piece in the south. And so when we hear this story, it's that southern part in the south that's trying to figure out what their role in the world is until the Babylonian Empire rises up and finishes the job the Assyrians couldn't and takes away all of the people that were living there, essentially everyone middle class and above, all the influencers get taken off to Babylon in exile. And that seems like the end of the story, but uh, as it tends to be in the Middle East, there's always a war right around the corner, just hold on. Uh, And Persia rises up in the east and destroys Babylon And takes over the entire area. And King Cyrus, who's their king, has a different philosophy of things. And he has some affinity for the Jews. So he says to them, hey, if you want to go back home, that's totally cool with me. And so a large group of people head back to Jerusalem. And what we we get in that moment is this kind of two-book series of Ezra and Nehemiah. In which they undergo this process of rebuilding the temple, establishing temple worship, then rebuilding the city and the walls. And that's where we are right now. Now, when I tell you that story in like a streamlined 90 seconds or whatever that was, you go, oh, boom, 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 this all happens. From the moment of exile to the moment we are right now in the story, it's 150 years. Now, I I get it. On biblical timescales, it's like, oh, blink of an eye, you mean? I want you, these are people. I want you to do me a favor and just think for a second what 150 years ago your ancestors are doing, okay? I'm going to, like four or five generations ago, like I'll put a fine point on it. What were your great-grandparents' parents doing? You have any, any idea? Like maybe your family's really into genealogy. My dad's kind of into genealogy. I have, I have kind of a picture Like, I I could at least reference a document and find their name and maybe where they were born, but that's about it. You start asking me more difficult questions about, like, what did they do day to day? What did they care about? What was their ethos? What was the essence of who they were as humans? What did they pursue with their lives? I have no idea. Those people could not be more far removed from me and my own daily experience than anything else I can imagine. Might as well be telling a Bible story. Here's what I do know. My ancestors 150 years ago lived on a farm in south central Norway. And things were so bad on that farm in south central Norway that the best option that they had was to pack up their large family with little kids and get on a boat that took months to get across, or weeks, I'm sorry, to get across the ocean. And then when they landed in North America, they packed up and went halfway across the continent to settle in rural North Dakota. Think about how bad it must have been. (laughs) North Dakota. And I'm sure they thought, oh, it'll be great. We'll get there, there'll be land, we'll cut down some trees and build a beautiful house. There's no trees in North Dakota. They had to build houses out of dirt and grass. And this was the best 
option they have. And this is the length of time, this long road of recovery that we're talking about. It's easy for us to tell these stories is boom, 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 boom. It's a long time. It's a century and a half in which they've been removed from the land, released from captivity. They've rebuilt the temple. They've restored worship. They've reclaimed the city. They've rebuilt the walls. And now the work's done. Who are they going to be? What are they going to do now that the project's complete? That's where we find ourselves in chapter 7. We're going to go ahead and jump right in there. But before we do, I want to I pray. Because one of the dangers in a moment like this, where we're looking at what could be argued to be interesting history, is that it is just that, interesting history. And this needs to be more than just interesting history. This needs to be an opportunity in which we encounter how God interacted with his people and how we can apply that to our lives today. So let's, let's pray that God would meet us here and then we'll keep going. God, we thank you for this moment together together. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the way you are committed to your people. Whether we're separated by 150 years or 2,500 years, you're committed to our good, our growth, our health. God, grace is something that you've called us into and we're grateful. We pray that you would meet us here this morning, that your spirit would be among us, that we would learn and grow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can follow along in your Bible. We are in Nehemiah chapter 7. Um, now, maybe unintuitively, Nehemiah is kind of towards the end of the Old Testament story, but don't look at the end of the Old Testament to find it. It's earlier. A lot of reasons why that happened. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, a physical Bible, I'd love to invite you to find yourself one. Either go over to the bookstore or get on Amazon and order a Bible, um, or get on your phone and get the app so that you can follow along the text. If you're not ready for that this morning, that's great. We're going to have the text on the screen. But I think it's very helpful for you to be able to follow along the text because we revere the text, and we're going to go to it over and over again. Let's start in chapter 1. Verse 1, after the wall had been rebuilt and I set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed, I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. I love this line. I'm just imagining Nehemiah. He's like, okay, the job's done. Hey, bro, I need you to run Jerusalem. Are you good with that? And he says, yeah, but I'm not sure if I can handle running the city and being the commander of the citadel. You got anybody to suggest? Yeah, how about Hananiah? He's a man of integrity. Yeah, does he fear God? Well, more than most people do, I guess. Good enough. We'll take him. These guys are set in charge now. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot, while the gatekeepers are still on duty. Have them shut the doors and bar them and also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. So what we have here is, uh, I think it was last chapter, we heard that the gates were not in place and that was a moment of kind of tension because there's people in the surrounding neighborhoods that are threatening violence to the Jews there in the city. That's changed. The gates are in place now. But this instruction is interesting because in ancient Near Eastern culture, it would have been very normal to have a city gated. It's the way you protected the city. And you would have closed and locked the gates at night. And then at dawn, the gates would have been opened. And at dusk, they would have closed again. But that is not what Nehemiah says here. He says, don't open those gates until the sun is hot. Now, if you're in Arizona, that was probably still dawn. But I, I don't think that was what was going on. I think he's saying, like, wait till mid-morning. 
until you open the gates. What does that tell us? Well, I think it gives us a little bit of a picture of what's going on. The first thing I think it tells us is those people who were causing trouble and threatening violence are still a threat. Even though we have the gates in place, we're still worried they're going to show up. So we have to be on guard. We're going to be protective. The second thing that I think this tells us is that there's not a lot of business going on in town. Because there would be very little tolerance for keeping the gates closed for most of the working day, especially the coolest part of the working day, if there was a lot of business going on. I'm guessing nobody cares that much because nobody's going in and out other than the religious folks and they live in town anyway, so we're good. The last thing I think it tells us is, if you think post-COVID hiring is difficult, try doing it in a ruined city where no one lives. They don't have enough people to man the place. So all this comes together and they have these instructions to keep the gate open only for short periods of the day. Now Nehemiah turns to the city and here's what he says. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were very few people in it and the houses had not been rebuilt. The Hebrew actually says it was, the city was wide of two hands and spacious. So much room for activities. And, uh, Nobody's living there. Now, you might ask, like, why is nobody living there? Wasn't the whole purpose to get back there, build the wall, and live in Jerusalem? Well, here, man, I love maps and pictures. Um, Hope you're excited about this like I am. I got a pointer. Whoops. Okay, here we go. This is a picture of roughly what the city of Jerusalem would have looked like in this day. Now, if if you're familiar with modern-day Jerusalem, it is a sprawling metropolis. But right in the middle of the city is the old city that's surrounded by walls that you can go visit. The old city is relatively small. You could walk around it in a short afternoon. And this, which would have been Jerusalem at this time, is just a small portion of that city. It is relatively insignificant. And what you see here is at the top, this is where the temple would have been, up at the very top of the mountain. You look, raise your eyes to the Lord. The the temple would have been up there. And then here's the wall that they would have been working to rebuild. But if you notice, uh, the city of Jerusalem is built literally on the side of a hill. And so the wall is not just for protection. The wall is also an actual structural feature of keeping the city up. So when these walls get knocked down, guess what happens to terraced homes that live on terrace being held back by the wall? They fall down. The Babylonians did their best to burn and ravage the city. And in the 150 years since this has happened, those terraced hills in which provided a place to build homes have washed down the hill and there's not much left. And Nehemiah knows it. So what is he going to do about this problem? Well, this is what he says. So God put into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the common people for registration by families. He decides he's going to do a census. He says, I'm going to get everybody who's around now that the work's done, and we're going to get a count of who's actually here and who are we dealing with. I think first that helps him with some administrative things, but secondly, I think he's kind of like an ancient real estate agent. He's going to host an open house. How do you get people to move in? Have them come by and have some cookies. What would it take to put you in a ruined cabin today? So much room. Anyone you'd like. And he says, I found the genealogical record of those who had been the first to return. This is what I found written there. Now, if you're following along in your scriptures, uh, you're going to give me some sympathy here because you're going to look at the next 60 plus verses and you're going to go, wow, that's a long list of weird names and long numbers. We're not going to read it all today. I got two chapters to get through. 
Uh, if you're a completionist, feel free to go ahead and read those later. Uh, that's great. I am going to address the question that I think this list brings. Now, this list is interesting because it's actually a copy of a list that exists in Ezra chapter 2. Ezra and Nehemiah originally was just one book. Uh, and so he copied. This is essentially the first group of people who came back to Jerusalem. Here's the list again. The question it begs us, because if you, when I was probably 22 and I, was I had just gotten married, I was going to be serious about my faith, I was going to lead my family, I decided I need to read the Bible from start to finish. I've been in the church my whole life, never done that. There's a distressingly large amount of sections of the Bible like this if you give it the chance to start reading through the Old Testament. You're going to get to time after time where you're like, oh my gosh, am I really going to read this? I did once. But it, asks the, it begs the question, do genealogies matter? I mean, this stuff is recorded in the Bible. This isn't the only place. There's many places that genealogies like this are recorded. Does it matter at all? Or are you free to just skip past it without regard? I'm going to make an argument for why these genealogies matter, why they matter to the Jews, and I think why they even matter to us. Maybe not in specific, but in generalities. And here's, here's a list of the reasons that I think they matter. The first one is, these genealogies establish honor that's given to risk and commitment. What do I mean by that? These people who moved from Persia or Babylon in the capital were living in a metropolitan major city. Remember, they were the middle class and above, which means they had means, wealth, and in 150 years, they probably did a good job establishing a nice life for themselves. And they gave that up to come back to a ruined city with broken walls, there needs to be honor given to the risk and commitment. Listen, I don't want to tell anybody they should move from South Central Norway to North Dakota now, but it's a lot easier than it was in 1870. And the honor needs to be given to those who risked it and put their commitment on the line. The second one is it gives these Jews a connection to their historic community, a community that has existed in this place for long before them. The third thing is it gives them a validated claim to land, leadership, and legal standing. All you have to do is look at modern Israel and the tension that exists there as a people came back into a land that was already inhabited. That's a dicey situation. When people live somewhere and have a claim to it and you move into their land, people don't tend to respond well. And so this establishes, hey, we were here. Our families were here. This is the place that we're from. And the last one, and the one that I would argue is maybe the most important, the one that applies to us the most, is that it establishes for them a responsibility that spans generations. Our current societal environment is very individualistic, meaning you are responsible for yourself and maybe your direct family, as long as they're kind of in line with what you're trying to do, and everyone else is okay as long as they're going along for the ride. That is not the story of Israel, and it's not the story of the church. Those stories tell us that we have a responsibility that's been given from God to us that spans generations of people. And these genealogies establish the connection to that historic responsibility. If you're a Christian, if you're wanting to raise a family in the ways of Jesus, you have not only the privilege of that, but the responsibility of it that follows to the next generation and the next and the next and the next. I would argue that genealogies are fairly important. We're going to skip it, though. 
So here we go. We're going to get to chapter 8 after all that stuff. You can write me a report and tell me what you thought of it later. Uh, so we have that section of Ezra 2 that's recopied into this place. And then this is what it says. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. So you say, oh, the seventh month. I know how that works. We're in the seventh month. It's July. I get it. Wrong. They had a different calendar. Uh, the seventh month on their calendar would have been actually like October. So this is in the fall. And what is the significance of that? This also would have represented their new year. Now, we think January 1st, new year, because of our calendar. That is not the way ancient Near Eastern people uh, process things. Because they were agricultural people, their entire year cycled around the harvest. So new year started at harvest time. Because guess what? This next year is going to be determined by one thing. How good was the crop last year? And so here they are on New Year's Day. Think about it that way. New Year's Day, they're coming together as one in the square. One of the other translations I read said, they came together as one man. I love that picture. This picture of unity and commitment to each other, indivisible, unable to be torn apart. You can't divide them and survive. As Jack Shepard said on Lost, we can live together or die alone. Three of you got that reference. I love you. So they come back together on this first day of the first year in which they're going to survive in the land of their forefathers, and they say, what are we going to do? We are going to be in unity as we set the course for who we're going to be now. One of my favorite things to do as a pastor is to perform weddings. And I love weddings for a few reasons. One of the reasons that I love weddings is that I get to be vital to the process. There's no, nothing better than having to be vital. They need me, but they also don't care about anything I say. Nobody remembers what the guy said at the wedding. As long as you signed the document and made sure it was legal, everything's good. I love it. And one of my favorite things to do is when, when I have a Christian marriage, when two Christians are being married, I love to encourage them to take communion as their first act as a married couple. Like before they kiss, take communion. And the reason for that is because it signifies a unity and an intentionality in what they are going to be, and they establish it on the cross of Jesus. It's meaningful for them. It's meaningful for the people who are witnessing it. I encourage it whenever I can because of the symbology that it brings. Because we have to remember, there is no such thing as a culture-free people, place, society, family the way people are, what they value, what they order their lives around, what they spend their money on, what they celebrate, what they shun. All of those things make up culture. And there is nearly endless inputs and influences that go into making up the shape of a culture. Like if we said, hey, for the next little bit here, we're going to try to chronicle what makes up the American culture. We're going to have to try to uh, get together a list that includes things like our history, our economic systems, our media, our movies, our television, our music, our celebrities, slavery, a civil war, an American revolution, the internet, our family structures, Western Christianity, democracy, on and on and on. It's almost uncategorizable in the comprehensiveness of what shapes what we experience as society. But there, there are two ways that society is built. Culture is either absorbed or created, and almost always it's both of those things. 
We absorb culture that's around us, but it doesn't have to be just absorbing. And what we see here illustrated in Israel is an intentionality to create culture. We are going to establish right here in this place that we will not just absorb what's given to us. Instead, we will create something with intentionality. And they had lots of options of things that they could have unified around, right? They could have unified in their opposition to their enemies that surrounded them. After all, there was tons of people that lived in the cultures around them that were antagonistic to their way of life. They could have pledged loyalty to Persia, the great nation that had freed them and offered them democracy. Well, not democracy. They could have given commitment to their leader, Nehemiah. He was a great president. I mean, leader. Right? But that's not what they do. They say that's not our call. Those things might be good. They might be beneficial. They might be helpful. But those are not the things we're going to drive our commitment. Instead, we are going to unify ourselves around the scriptures. We're going to unify ourselves about what God said about who we are and who he is. We're going to unify ourselves around what he said our role is in the world and what we're called to be and to do and how we should live and how he's given us instruction to thrive and to be whole and to be faithful. And this is significant. This is important Because unity is important. And unity can only be maintained when we share commitment to something even when it costs us. Unity is an amazingly appealing illusion at times. Because we can convince ourselves we're unified as long as everybody is going along with what I like them to go along with. As long as you do what I want and I'm comfortable with, we can be unified all day. But I want you to imagine for a second a marriage in which the unity of that marriage only exists as long as no one has a disagreement about anything and it doesn't cost you anything. How long is that marriage making it? Past the honeymoon? No, probably not. If if we are going to be willing to abandon our commitment to our unity and to each other in order to fight for our own rights, to defend our positions or ourselves, if we've unified around the wrong things, our unity will be shattered. And unity can never be a minor issue to God's people. It just can't be. And we see Israel demonstrate it right here by making a commitment to God's word. And here's what they say. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. There's another translation that says made up of men and women and the others who were able to understand, which has got to be my favorite euphemism for children. Men, women, and the others who understand. You know who you are back there. My kids are in the back. The others who understand. It says, he read it aloud from daybreak until noon. I'm going to pause. He read it aloud from daybreak until noon. I actually looked it up. It would have been 6.32 a.m. that the sun came up on that day. So that means that he read for a long time. I don't want to hear complaining about my 35 minutes. You can handle it. He faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men and the women and the others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion, the creation of the pulpit. Beside him on his right stood 
the stuff that Summer read earlier. <laughs> Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and uh, Messiah, and on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malkjah, Hashem, Hashabananah, Zechariah, and Meshalem. Ezra opened the book. All of the people could see him because he was standing above them, and as he opened it, the people all stood up. And Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And then they bowed down and they worshipped the Lord with their faces on the ground. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Don't mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Don't grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be still. This is a holy day. Do not grieve. I love this instruction to go enjoy some choice food. In the... Now, when I say, I want you to go enjoy some choice food, here's the problem with the translation choice food. You all, tell, you all think of what choice food looks like. Somebody goes, ooh, I like a steak. And somebody says, mm, I want some pizza. And somebody says, I like some quinoa and kale, and I pray for you. <laughs> but we all kind of decide, now, what is choice food? Here's what, the, here's what the Hebrew actually says. Go eat some fat food. Everybody's got a different picture now. We all know what fat food looks like. It's the best kind of food. And that's what he says to do. You heard the word preached to you. Don't cry. Here's, here's the reality. Israel, as they stand there under the word of God that's being read to them and preached to them and taught to them and explained to them, they begin to get a real picture of who they are and what they've done and how they failed at their mission and how they've disobeyed God and how they've ignored him and how they've rebelled against him and it breaks their hearts. They realize that what has come upon them as a people is not the forces of some outside influence that was beyond their control. They have brought it upon themselves. In fact, they deserve worse than what they've had. And they cry and they weep because they get this picture. And Nehemiah says, no, 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 no. This is a day of joy. This is a holy day. Because the truth of the matter is those things are true. That grief you feel is deserved, but it cannot be the dominant feeling of today because God has shown up even though. All that stuff about you is true. In fact, you're probably giving a generous assessment to your own participation. It's probably worse than you've admitted. If you're crying, if you knew really what it was, it'd be worse. And yet, God has seen fit to rescue. God has seen fit to love. God has seen fit to continue his commitment to his people. God has seen fit to continue his effort to restore the world through the people of Israel, and he's doing it right now. He's brought you back to your homeland. He's taken you out of captivity. He's given you people. He's given you a word. He's given you a temple. He loves you. Rejoice. Don't cry. Be still. This is a holy day. I love this line, the joy of the Lord is your strength. What does that mean? It's one of these great churchy phrases, the joy of the Lord is your strength, and everybody says yes, and then they go, what does that even mean? Here's what I would say it means. 
If you're going to rely on your performance, if you're going to rely on how well you could pull it together, if you could rely on how good you are at being a king, then you're going to be in trouble. But you don't have to worry about that because the joy of the Lord and what he provides for you is your strength. You don't have to rely on something that's an illusion. You don't have to rely on something that even on your best day you can barely muster together. No. The joy of the Lord and the fact that he has your back, that he loves you, that he's committed to you is where you can find your strength. And if that's true, if that's true, then you darn right, we're going to eat. Bring out the fat food. Let's go. Then all the people went away to eat and drink. They sent portions of the food to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Now on the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the teacher to give attention to the words of the law. Day one, everybody, including the kids, at least the ones who could understand, came together to listen. Day two, let's just bring the leaders together. We're going to do an in-depth, inductive Bible study today. We're going to look at the law. We're going to give special attention to it. And here's what they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month. As they're studying, they discover, hey, we have a historic New Year's festival that God gave to Moses. We need to do this. We need to proclaim this word and spread it through the towns in Jerusalem. And here's what the instructions are. I want you to go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive trees and wild olive trees and myrtles and palms and shade trees and make temporary shelters as it's written. So the people went out and they brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards and in the courts of the house of God and in the square by the water gate and the one by the gate of Ephraim. You go, wait, okay. So they got together for the Bible study and what they came out with is everybody should build a shack. That was their whole plan. Yes, it was. In fact, it's still going on today. It's called the Festival of Booths. This is a picture of uh, Jerusalem in modern day, as you can tell by the air conditioner on the wall right there. Uh, Orthodox Jews still practice this in a very literal way. At the, at the New Year festival, they will build a shack outside of their house, and for a week to inaugurate the New Year, they will eat and sleep and recreate in the shack. Why in the world would they do this? Because it's a reminder, a reenactment of God's faithfulness to them when he brought them out of slavery in Egypt and they wandered in the wilderness and he was still faithful. They built shacks in the wilderness and God was with them. So they might have accomplished much. They might have built much. They might have made industry and business and they might have wealth. But every year, we're going to start the year by reminding you where you come from. You come from a shack in the desert. And the only reason you have even a place to lay your head is because God is good to you. It's reenactment. This is a reminder of who they've been. And here's what the text says. And the whole company returned from exile. Everyone who had returned built temporary shelters and they lived in them. And from the days of Joshua, a long time ago, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated like this. Their joy was great. They partied like it was 1999. All you old people said, I remember that. It was a big deal. 
They threw down. They had a party like they hadn't had a party in a thousand years. That's an epic rager. And why? I think one of the things that we have to realize here is that what we see in Israel in this moment is the kind of thing that defines what biblical transformation looks like. And here's what it looks like. The shape of biblical transformation is deep sorrow overcome by eclipsing joy. And those two things have to exist together. They have to coexist for biblical transformation to actually be occurring in your life. If you live in deep sorrow because of what you've been, you will be depressed and you will not be a faithful witness to God's goodness. If you shortcut the whole thing and live in eclipsing joy without ever facing the deep sorrow that really confronts who you've been and what you deserve and what you've earned in life, then you will never experience the joy that you need to experience. These two things must come together, and we see it perfectly here in Israel. As they hear the word of God read over them, and they're moved to tears, and then they're instructed, remember, God is good, and he's still committed to you, and he loves you, and they begin to rejoice. And that's where transformation happens, in their life, and in your life, and in my life. Now we go, okay, that's, that sounds great. Israel went through a bunch. Good story. I like it. Even a good tagline at the end with a picture of some food. I'm happy. We really need to, to wrestle with the fact that we are not different in our calling and our response that we are asked to be a part of as God's people today in the 21st century than they were then. We need to be able to respond as God's people. And here's what it looks like. When God's people, when you and I respond to his goodness, we do so in three ways. The first one is in celebration. We see it in this picture where Nehemiah says, here's what it's going to look like. You're going to throw a party like you never had before. You're going to celebrate because God's good. The second thing is you're going to be generous. These people have been generous like crazy. They left a comfortable place to go reestablish. They've given money to rebuilding the temple. They've given money to support the priests and the Levites and the songwriters and all the people that go around the temple worship. They've given money and effort in order to rebuild the walls of the temple. And then here at the end, when it says it's time to party, enjoy yourself, also be generous to people who don't have enough and give them something to eat too. Generosity is all over it. And then the last one is we live a life of reenactment. He tells them to reenact this moment of the festival of booths in which they remember how God rescued them from the wilderness, how he provided, how they would have been lost without his guidance. So what does that look like for us? Well, I'm glad you asked. What does it look like for us to celebrate? I, I want to give you some, I, I'm going to make a statement. I think, I think Americans are great at celebration. We're really good at it. If you ever talk to Europeans who come to America to visit for the first time and they say, what do you notice about American, Americans? They're so effusive. They're so friendly and over the top. Yeah, we're good celebrators. Just wait till the Suns win that final and you'll see. We're going to celebrate. Turn over a car. We know how to celebrate. But, but I think as Christians, we need to be the best celebrators we, got, we have in this society. And we can do it in a bunch of ways. Number one, holidays should be amazing for us. Now, I'll give you the easy ones. Christmas and Easter, great. Maybe Thanksgiving even. 
But we should be celebrating holiday. Your, your house should be so covered in Christmas lights. Forget I'm saying this, my wife and children right now, because I'm not good at this. But your house should be so covered. When I drive by your house, it should be so covered in Christmas lights that everyone goes, man, what are they celebrating? Let me tell you, Dan. Meals. We love to eat. I'm a, I'm a hearty Midwestern Scandinavian boy. We don't know how to... I also grew up Baptist, so we didn't drink. All we ever did to celebrate was eat. Good news, we're going to eat. Let's go. And I think that's great. But we need to center our meals around celebration with God at the center, not just celebration at the center. Christians will often say, man, if I, I want to get serious about my faith, and they'll say, oh, you should fast. And yes, you should fast. But I think we would do ourselves some good to learn how to practice partying with God at the center. Let's eat a meal that's the fat food and celebrate God's provision to us. I can, I'm going to keep bringing up that fat food as much as I can. <laughs> Next time somebody says, are you sure you should be eating that fat food? <laughs> also, I think it's really beneficial for families. If you're, if you're a family in here, um, I want, I want to encourage you to build traditions. Traditions that have something behind them that really emphasize God's goodness to your family that can be carried on. And, and I will admit I'm not great at that, but my wife is. She does things year after year after year that establish for our sons a kind of tradition that points us to God every year and allows us to celebrate. And then the last one is something you're going to do here in just a minute. We're going to worship. Uh, there are not many places in uh, American society where we gather together once a week and stand in a room and sing really loudly together. It's weird. Maybe you already felt that this morning. You're going to feel it again. There's a reason that we sing. We sing because God is good and he's faithful and he continues to be faithful even in the face of our unfaithfulness. He's good to us. And so we sing and we raise our voices and we make a loud noise I want you to embarrass your spouse with your voice when we sing here in a minute. Next one, generosity. Uh, I'm going to use this opportunity to be selfish. I'm going to talk about the church. The first thing is we should be generous with our time. And what I mean by that is if this is your church home, if you're visiting here, I want to tell you this next section in particular does not apply to you. We're glad that you're here. But if you say this is my home, this is my church, this is my family, I'm talking to you, Okay. You need to be giving of your time to the mission that God has for this place in this time. The mission of the gospel that is being planted here in this corner of Gilbert is being done by the work of your family and your place. When my wife and I came here to this church 21 years ago, we were brand new, newly married, uh, and the pastor told us that we should come to learn and to serve. That's what he told us. And we were here six weeks, and he said that, uh, and he said, there, we have two services, so you can come to one and you can serve at one. And I said, okay. I was 22. I didn't know any better. And we signed up to serve in a Sunday school class, and we built blocks with three-year-olds, and it was great. You need to have a place of service in this community. And there's plenty of them to go around. We're not, you know, busting at the seams for people to serve. We'll find a place for you. If you don't think we have room, try us. The second thing I want to encourage you to give is generosity and attention. It is not unusual to give attention to people who deserve attention, people who can help my career, people who are fun to be around, people who are funny, people who are attractive, people who can offer me something I need. That's not strange. What is strange is the generosity to give to people that the rest of the world overlooks. To give attention to the poor, to the awkward, 
to the sick, to the disabled. We should be a place that is overwhelmingly welcoming to the outsider, to the sojourner, to the one who feels alone, to the one who feels unwelcomed. This place should be so generous that it is at their attention. They say, you know what? Why don't you just cool out a little bit? I got enough. The last one I'm going to hit on is money. One of the things that is uh, unique about this church, and I hear it from people who come here for the first time all the time, is you guys never talk about money. I grew up in the church. Every single Sunday, they'd pass an offering plate down all the aisles, and everybody would throw in a little cash out of some guilt, and it was it's the way they did it. And we don't do that here. Now, that's good. I like it. But it also means that we have to trust the fact that people who call this place home are investing generously in their resources, in their money, in giving to the church so that this ministry can continue. That's just the reality. We don't pass one of those buckets on a long stick in front of you. If you like that, help us keep it up by giving some money to the church. And here's what it looks like. There are black boxes by every... My grandma, before she passed away, she had moved down here to Arizona. She's already come to the church because after all, her son, her grandson is her favorite grandson, I might add, well, uh, it was, is one of the pastors. So she started coming. And she said to me after she'd been here like six weeks, she was almost angry with me. She said, Jeremy, come over here. And she grabbed my shoulder. And I said, what, Grandma? Where in the heck do I give money to this place? She said, just like that. It's like, you just give that to me, Grandma. I'll take care of it. <laughs> There's black boxes by the doors on the way out. They, you can put cash or checks in there. Neil likes them both. Uh, we also live in the 21st century. <laughs> You can give online, and you can set your bank to send a check. And, and I know this is on the nose, but I think it is a responsibility and an opportunity to express something true about God that I don't want you to miss. My wife and I, like I said, have been here for 21 years, and it's not comfortable for me to talk about our giving, so I'll give you a vague detail. For 21 years, every time we get a paycheck, the bank automatically sends a check to the church. And you might go, well, you work here. Is that, how does that work? It doesn't matter. We're part of this community. We're investing in this place. We give here because we believe that the work that God is doing in this place is the, for the betterment of my family, my community, and that the gospel matters. And God's been good to you, and he's been good to me, and therefore I'm going to give. And if you're a person of means, then congratulations, you've been given the gift of giving a lot. And if you're a person who has very little, congratulations, you've been the, given the gift of giving a little. And God uses them both. Lastly, I want to talk about reenactment. I want to talk about reenactment because uh, this is one of those things that I think really does make us stand out as Christians, as people who follow God. The Jews had an entire calendar that was built around these reenactment moments. Most of their festivals involved some sort of reenactment of something God had done in their history. From the festival of booze that we just talked about to the Passover that they would celebrate every year and, where, and when they practiced and reenacted God's provision for them while they were in slavery. We do it primarily in the church in two ways. Number one, baptism. Baptism reenacts the death and resurrection of Jesus and how you've been united with him in that death and been united with him in that new life. If you're a Christian and you've never been baptized, then we do that a couple times, three to two to three times a year uh, here. If you've never done it, uh, don't worry. You can sign up for the next one, and I personally will dunk you. You need to follow in this moment of obedience. The last one is something we do every week. We celebrate communion together. Uh, communion is a reenactment of actually one of the reenactments that the Jews would have practiced, Passover. 
The Bible tells us a story that Jesus, on the weekend that he was betrayed to be killed, turned over to the Roman authorities by his closest friend, that they celebrated one of these moments of reenactment. And we're going to do that together here. We're going to celebrate this moment of reenactment together so you can start getting your, I'm going to suffer right along with you, so figure this thing out. Thanks, COVID. What Jesus said at that meal is he took something that they had reenacted for hundreds and a thousand years together, this Passover moment, and he said he was going to recast this moment. It was going to become a new kind of reenactment, one for the church, one for us. That's why we celebrate it every week. Jesus said to his friends, whenever you gather together, I want you to do this to remember me. He took a, he took a loaf of bread that would have been at the meal. You might think this bread is terrible, but it's probably not too far removed from what they would have ate. He took that loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said that this was his body that would be given for them. And he says, reenact this to remember me whenever you gather together. Let's eat together. Likewise, at the end of the meal, he took a, a cup of wine. That wine represented blood in the story that they were reenacting in the Passover. And Jesus said this also represents blood. Blood that would be shed for a new covenant between God and man. One made in his blood that would be shed. And he said, whenever we gather together, we're to drink it in remembrance of him. Let's drink together. God, you're good. We thank you for your faithfulness. God, we pray that we transform as people. We pray that we experience the deep sorrow of how we failed and that it's followed by eclipsing joy of how you've come through even in our failure. God, let us be a people of celebration. Let us worship. Let us raise our voices to the name of Jesus. He's worthy. We pray this in his name. Amen.